Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? Well, once again, we get to do this live, in person, face-to-face, which is a treat. We are also wrapping up non-conference play. We're getting into conference play. That can mean only one thing. It is a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat basketball fan. Indeed it is. Um, and for the third time this season, I think we've gone about a week without playing basketball. It's Oof. brutal. Brutal for the fan in me. Brutal for the podcast. But we'll, we'll trudge on nonetheless. And given that we are moving into the new decade, 2020 is rapidly approaching. And when many of you listen to this, it'll probably be the new year. Now is ta- as good a time as any to do some all-decade awards. We could go. We could go straight through it and, and give all decade teams and in awards of that nature. But let's face it, the all decade team is pretty straightforward. We know who the best Bearcats of the decade were. There's not going to be a lot of controversy there. So instead of that, let's have some fun and give out some awards. And to start that off, let's let's start with a positive. Let's go with the overachiever of the decade. And with this, let's capture a player who maybe didn't have the highest expectations. We didn't necessarily think we were getting an all-time Bearcat or, or an NBA-type Bearcat. Who, in your opinion, Hummer, was the overachiever of the decade? And, you know, I think this is going to be a little controversial. I don't think everybody's going to necessarily agree with, with the pick that we're throwing out here. Uh, because if, when we say this name, you're going to say, well, well, wait a minute. He's obviously on that all-decade team. He is that one player who is like, if you leave him off, you are just, you're an idiot. <laughs> But that's, this is Jacob Evans I'm talking about. Jacob Evans was a player, when he came in, was not an overly exciting recruit when you look at him on paper. He was a three-star recruit, but he obviously developed into an NBA talent player who the Warriors seem to actually have a, a good grasp on where they want him to be in the future and not someone who's just simply going to fade away into the, into the twilights of the NBA. Uh, but yeah, I think that's going to be a controversial move for us to give him an overachiever award. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a solid pick because I think he kind of hovered in between the three and four star rating. Um, I just remember when he came in, it wasn't necessarily the highest expectations. I didn't know that we were getting an NBA type player, and if you looked at him physically as freshman year, pretty unassuming. You know, he was six five, uh, not necessarily cut, not a lot of his body didn't look like a pro. He didn't look like he even had a, the athleticism of a pro. But he came in from day one and was instantly contributing to the Bearcats, outperformed expectations as a freshman, and then every year came back more fit, more, more, more ready to be a big contributor at the college level. And then you quickly started thinking, well, Jacob Evans might be an actual pro after four years. But he, out, he even outperformed that idea and was able to leave college early, leave college uh, for the NBA draft, became that first-round draft pick you're alluding to. And uh, we'll see how long he lasts and sticks in the NBA. He's had some... Had some struggles with the Warriors here early, but I think it's a great pick for overachiever of the decade. Anyone, uh, anyone else we should maybe pay mind to who would be, you know, an honorable mention? Oh, I definitely got an honorable mention. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out, uh, you know, our boy Mick Cronin. I think Mick Cronin was the another overachiever of the decade. I don't think he came in with the highest expectations from the fan base. He was not a very popular choice when we hired him as as head coach in the previous decade. 
And he had not actually seen a whole lot of success transitioning from 2009-10 and did not start seeing success until the you know the very early parts of this past decade. And so, yeah, I'm going to give him a little bit of an overachiever because he took us to eight straight NCAA tournaments. He I think it was nine, right? We're, nine we're, we're going for nine right now, uh, right? Okay, that's uh, maybe so. Maybe so, and don't fact, fact check we, us we there, guys. Don't come here for facts. Yeah, we're close enough. But he did that, but he also took us to a tournament title. He took us to a tournament championship as well, which is fantastic. So, yeah, you know, from Con- an expectation perspective. A conference tournament championship. Yeah, what did I say? Well, you just said tournament. I think we need to specify with tournament stuff that Mick Cronin took That's us to true. It. We did not. That's true. <laughs> Well, we went with overachiever Jacob Evans, Sean Kilpatrick. Let's throw him a little shout out. Sean Kilpatrick also really uh, probably overachieved when you think about what he came in as. Our next award's going to be the opposite, the underachiever of the decade. And it's not an award that you feel great about giving out. You know, it's obviously based on what your expectations were. But I do think we should we should we should give mention to who who maybe underperformed and underachieved for their Bearcat career. So I think this is going to be another one that people are going to be surprised about. And they're probably also definitely going to fact check that he was technically not on or played as a Bearcat in this decade. And that's Lance Stevenson. <laughs> I'm giving this award to Lance Stevenson simply because he did play from 2009 to 10. He did play in the decade. But in my opinion, and from some of the stories I've read and heard, he should have actually been playing as a Bearcat in 2010-2011. Cronin did try to persuade him to not go into the NBA right away for a couple reasons. One being the draft stock where he was, going from a basically a high second-round draft pick to being able to, if he stayed one more year, develop into a, a first-round prospect. And then the financial windfall that would come from that. But I think had he stayed been a member of this all-decade team, he would have developed more. He would have been a first-round draft pick. He would have actually had what we probably would have looked at as a pretty exciting career as a Bearcat as opposed to a one-year kind of fizzle. Respectfully, I'm going to disagree. Lance Stevenson played the exact right amount of time with the Cincinnati Bearcats and probably shouldn't even qualify for this award given the 2009-2010 season. But even with what you're saying... Lance Stevenson ended up, I think, signing a $50 million-plus-dollar contract with the Charlotte Hornets at one point. Now, he completely underachieved that contract, ended up taking you know minimum, minimum veteran deals with the Lakers at one point, and now he's playing out in China. I don't necessarily know that Lance Stevenson was, the, was a basketball player that really wanted to be in college to begin with. It's why a lot of big-time schools stayed away from him, and Cincinnati actually had the opportunity to snag him up. And I don't necessarily know that I wanted any more part of that Lance Lance Stevenson experience than we already got. Well, that's why I think that's why I think I want to give him the award, because what Cronin was basically saying to him is, look, yes, you're going to be in the NBA, but there's a big difference from being a second round draft pick to getting that first round draft pick, getting that guaranteed money. Yes, later on, he did get that contract. But how many millions of dollars did he potentially lose out just by simply taking that first contract on a on a rookie deal? and not having a guaranteed first-round draft pick money. Yeah, he, he, he lost got paid money. later on, though. He in, got paid later on. In the short on. term, he lost money, I guess. Um, he would have made no money at Cincinnati, so I think that's kind of, uh, I don't know how but great of a point But this isn't about what he did is. in the NBA. This is about what he did here at the Cats, and in this case, the lack of what he did at the Cats. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. And, and Lance, keep doing you out in China. The stats look amazing, and, and the thirsty photos for getting back in the NBA are also also well appreciated. Well, let's also get into one that's actually was on in this decade. 
an yeah, actual and, player and in this the, decade. The player I'd like to nominate for the Underachiever Award is Yancey Gates. 100% agree with that. Yeah, I think Yancey was a huge recruit for the Bearcat program. He was a local Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati born, Cincinnati raised, huge, you know, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, frame, just all the talent in the wor- world, a feathery touch, just the type of player that you thought would come in and make, you know, have one of those lasting Danny Fortson-type legacies with the program. The unfortunate thing is, I'm not saying Yancey Gates was a bad player. He was actually a good player for four years, average to good player. But what we never saw was any sort of real development or expansion of his game. And and I think that the talent level was there to just have a more impactful and more memorable career with the Bearcats. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's almost like with Yancey Gates, you kept thinking, thinking to yourself, okay, when is his Kenyan moment going to start? When is he going to stop being or go from being, you know, okay to great? When's he going to come back from an offseason, you know, clearly having gone through the monster factory? You know, he's coming back chiseled. The body fat's cut down. He's, he's just ready to come and dominate, go, go 20 and 10 during a season. And that just never happened. It never happened. And it, it, left, you, it left you disappointed. Still a four-year Bearcat and, and you know, worthy of, of, of respect, certainly. He was, on the, he was a senior on the Sweet 16 team. He also is one of the one of the dark has one of the darkest moments in Bearcats history, uh, or brightest, depending on how you think about it. But he he was a, a definitely a shining spot on on Kenny Freeze's face. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so you know, unfortunately, we got to give that award to Yancey Gates for for the underperformer. Yeah, of the, the true the true underperformer of the decade, underachiever. <laughs> any any honorable mentions? Yeah, I got another honorable mention here, Mick Cronin. <laughs> And why does Mick Cronin get the underachiever of the decade award as well? Or an honorable mention. How do, how do, and people are probably wondering, how do you give him both the overachiever and the underachiever? Well, the, the underachiever here is, is the obvious as Bearcat fans, we have expectations for the program and what we think is acceptable performance in the fact that we have been to eight consecutive or nine consecutive NCAA tournament appearances and only appeared in one sweet 16. It's almost as if I'm watching Marv, the Marvin Lewis of college basketball. He just can't seem to win the big games. And in some of these teams, like, oh, my, the, the, the Nevada game, like how much does that just still ring and hurt? Like that, oh, come on, get us to the second round against Nevada. We had a clear shot straight through to Chicago Loyola. Like we had a, a clear shot to go that year. And once again, falls flat on his face and – uh, he just, it's he's frustrating, and that's why I say he is an. Uh, he also underachieved what he had with with this team. Yeah, the Nevada loss is a a black mark on the Cincinnati program. I have people ask me about it still. How many minutes was it? A twenty two point halftime lead? No, it was a twenty two point lead with ten or eleven minutes to go, and the Bearcats managed to blow the game. and And honestly, it irreparably damaged the relationship Cronin had with the fan base from that point forward. A nice little honorable mention. I, I like that you also gave him the overachiever, though, because the the regular season success for the program during Mick Cronin's tenure was exceptional. It's also the same reason we both had high expectations for the Bearcats heading into the season. And so, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to go bad. On, I want to go both ways with Cronin and say what, you know, stuff that he did was great and stuff that he did was, was bad. And, there's no doubt. It was an, it was an under... He definitely deserved the underachiever award for his postseason success with the Bearcats. Yeah. Just want to give credit where credit's due. <laughs> one more, you know, one more kind of funny award for the decade. Actually, we're going to have two more awards. We clearly have to give out an MVP of the decade. 
Uh, but I'm going to throw in a surprise on you. For, before, I, before I go with a funny award here, Hummer, I am going to throw one more surprise at you. Who was your favorite Bearcat of the last decade? For me, that was definitely Justin Mean Face Jackson. <laughs> yeah, that's a great pick because he's not necessarily the most prolific stat guy. He didn't have incredibly productive seasons. You know, his, his uh, senior season was, was really fun, but personality-wise. Oh, so fun. Can't think of a more fun big guy. For, he was, I mean, he was fun to watch because he brought energy to the team. When he would come in, when he would get a monster block, and he just, oh, mean mug. They put his mean mug on the highway driving down 71, the billboards. Every day I loved going to work and seeing Justin Jackson as mean mugging me and getting me pumped up to go do my own job, let alone what he's doing out on the court. So he was just incredibly fun, like you said. Not a big stack guy. Probably a guy that's going to get overlooked for a lot of those positions. To me, and I know you've disagreed with me on this in the past, but he... This is who Trey Scott most reminds me of in this particular role on this current year's squad. Maybe not Trey Scott's past role with Cronin's but in this particular role, he's almost more of a, an enforcer on the boards, grabbing rebounds, trying to play solid defense. He's been blocking shots lately, too. He blocking had some shots. really impressive blocks in the Iowa game. I think the Tennessee game as well. He's starting to flex his mean mug. and <laughs> So I just think they're bringing that kind of same energy, in, and that's why he's just one of my favorite players of this decade. He was so fun to watch. I have no qualms with that. My favorite player of the decade is who we're going to get to next. And that's going to be the MVP of the last decade for the Cincinnati Bearcats. Who's our MVP? Come on, guys. We all know who it is. Do we need to even say it to Houston? Do we have a problem? Gary Clark, MVP of the Bearcats decade. Other worthy candidates included Jaron Cumberland, Sean Kilpatrick, Jacob Evans. But to me, the answer is obvious. Gary Clark is the MVP of the decade for the Cincinnati Bearcats for everything he did on the court from freshman year to senior year. He was productive from day one. He worked his ass off in the gym, came back fit every single year, always ready to play, always adding things to his game. And if you even read the stories from the strength coach and assistant coaches and Mick Cronin, the work ethic that Gary Clark brought to the program was invaluable in terms of the precedent it set, in terms of the message it sent to incoming freshmen, this is how you're gonna. This is how we're gonna play at Cincinnati. This is how we're gonna work at Cincinnati. Gary Clark is definitely 100% the MVP of the Cincinnati Bearcats decade. Yeah, I, I, you can't disagree with that. He definitely was the definition of what a what you want to see out of a college basketball player from the the hustle, the dedication his intelligence of playing the game. His, and you mentioned his work ethic, which you even see past the collegiate game going into the NBA game where he's essentially had to trans, transform his entire way of what he did in college. And now all of a sudden, our basically our center, power forward, is playing a shooting specialist, three-point yeah, shooting like specialist. He's a spot-up three-point <laughs> shooting specialist for the Houston Rockets. And it's just it captures how good of a team player he is. He would do whatever it took to help a team win. And as a freshman, that was rebound and defense. And as he as he evolved into that senior leader role, he, he added things to his game. He became more of a scorer. You could throw it down to him on the block. He actually added a three-point shot his senior season and even, even starting his junior season. So just an, an awesome Bearcat, the epitome of, of what we enjoy and have appreciated over, over the many decades of Cincinnati Bearcat fans. So shout out to Gary Clark. That's an easy choice for me. Yep. Well, let's get to the last one here. And guys, I know you're going to fact check me on this, so I'm going to we're going to tell a little a quick little antidote about about how this came to be. This is our our least favorite player award. 
and we have joked when we were going through old Mick Cronin teams and which ones were our favorite, which ones are our least favorite. And we kind of did this exercise before. And funny enough, when we first started doing this podcast, we would talk beforehand and not record things. And so when we said this particular player's name, both at the same time, both without being prompted, we, we laughed, but then realized, well, maybe we shouldn't both say the same player. <laughs> that's not going to happen today. <laughs> so I originally said Kyle Washington, and that's unfair to Mr. Washington in, in, his, in his big big hook. And to be fair, Hummer, Mr. Washington, Kyle Washington would not even qualify for the award we're about to give out. Exactly. Because the next award we're about to give out is the transfer of the decade. <laughs> Hummer, who's our transfer of the decade? Quadri Moore. It's self-explanatory. If you listen to this podcast, you're a diehard Bearcats fan. Um, I thought that the decision he made to transfer from Cincinnati was one that was great for him. It appears he's been, uh, I see highlights of him floating around on Twitter of dominating at the D3 level. And in all honesty, I'm really happy that I did not have to spend the past two seasons watching Quadri Moore settle for mid-range, inefficient jump shots and not ever make a pass or a play that, um, I mean, honestly, Humber, the the most memorable play Quadri Moore made as a Cincinnati Bearcat was like saving a ball from going out of bounds and throwing it off an opposing player. <laughs> or maybe his first shot ever. He just came down and just shot a three and just <laughs> swished it. And you're like, oh, this guy's awesome. And then that was literally the high mark of his career. Everything else from there was downhill. But I, I do got to say something. Kyle Washington does also, he does True. also qualify for this award. He was a transfer. He transferred in and immediately was impactful okay, so for the team. so the transfer of the decade in the other way. In the other way. Because Kyle Washington was awesome for us for two seasons. And <laughs> while he did, he was a bit erratic on offense in terms of his decision making, he seemed, he really liked shooting the ball. Um, he too probably deserves the transfer of the decade award in the, in the other direction. In the positive so way. Let's not be too mean spirited. <laughs> Kyle Washington gets the real transfer of the decade award for the Cincinnati Bearcats. <laughs> well, Hummer, let's get into some real basketball. Um, before we go into a conference preview for the upcoming American athletic schedule, let's get, just do some final thoughts here on the non-conference schedule, how it went. The Bearcats are sitting right now at seven and five. How looking back on it, having a week to relax, enjoy your family at Christmas. How do you feel about the non-conference performance of the Bearcats? Well, I think there's, there's, there's a word that we can use to, to describe it as definitely disappointing. When, when we were doing our, our, our schedule preview earlier in the year, I think we, we had put some losses on the board for the Bearcats. We had no expectations that we were going to go undefeated in non-conference play. And I think we did have four, I think four, I think we picked four, four losses for this. I think you did, yeah. Four or five. I can't remember what, what the actual number was. But... It's the teams that we actually lost to that ended up being the problem, not and not necessarily the teams that we beat, and not even necessarily just the losses. You know, we we had to really uh, squeak out a few wins against teams that we should not have been biting our nails against, which included Illinois State. It included the win against UNLV, Valparaiso, it, Valparaiso. I mean, we had a run of overtime games. I think looking back on it, if I could change maybe my mindset heading into the season. I just didn't put enough stock in how difficult it is to bring a new coach into a new program with players that he didn't recruit, where the relationships are non-existent. It's difficult that first season for a, for a new coach, no matter who you are. You see it with Mick Cronin at UCLA. You see it with Travis Steele last year with Xavier. They underperformed based on what the expectations were from the fan base. 
it's just difficult anytime you bring in a new face, a new voice for that program. And so I think in hindsight, you know, predicting a team to only lose five games when you have the coaching and roster turnover that we did, that was a bit over optimistic. Um, that said, I think we're actually trending in a good direction with the Bearcats program. Despite coming off a loss against Iowa, we are starting to see the team really embrace the John Brandon style of basketball. We've seen our best performance of the year against Tennessee, and that was when Tennessee still had their starting point guard. The Bearcats really showed up. The crowd environment, it was a sold-out crowd, was exceptional. The style of basketball was exciting. And so what I think you've seen John Brandon learn is, well, I'm not going to be able to turn this roster of players into a great offensive team. I think we can be better than we have been this season and also that we have been in past seasons. But he's starting to realize, okay, we have to have that defensive first mentality. We have to lean on the fact that we we have players who are athletic, who can disrupt on disrupt teams like Iowa. I mean, look at the, the amount of turnovers we forced against them. If John Brandon starts coaching this team to the talent that's actually on the roster, I think we can actually turn this into a successful season moving into conference. I agree. And some other things, though, I think we definitely need to work on is you're mentioning how we are starting to force turnovers. We are still not taking care of the basketball on our end. We're seeing games where we're having 16 turnovers. I don't I think the average is actually like 14 or 15 per game. And that is a tremendous amount of, of turnovers that we're having. Hopefully we're going to see that decrease because we have seen some changes in the in the lineups that Brandon has been throwing out in the court, in particular against Tennessee and Iowa, where we saw Chris McNeil take more of a backseat role as a bench player and bringing in Micah Adams-Woods as being a key contributor uh, to the offense, which I, I hope that's... I hope that's Brandon's mentality the rest of the season. I don't really see Chris McNeil improving enough to, to all of a sudden say, hey, give me back my 30 minutes. If, you know, I really want to see Mike Adams-Woods there. We've had one really bad loss. I'd say one really bad loss, and that's, say, we Colgate. But even Colgate is projected to win their conference. So while that is a, a bad loss in terms of it being a bye game, uh, you know, Bowling Green at the same time. You know. The Bowling Green game was a bad loss. When you think about the, how the lead we had in the second half, it's a the bad way loss. we let that the way we let the lead slip with the hack of Chris McNeil at the end of the game, that was a tough one. Tough, tough one to swallow. But let's look at the other losses that we have. Ohio State, in my opinion, Ohio State is one of the best, if not the still the best team in the country. They're up there in the top five. They're a top five team. They're a top sure. five team. They are. They're a potential one seed in the tournament. That is that is definitely within their realm of possibilities this year. Xavier, also a quality defensive team. We that's a game we should have actually we did we could have actually won that game in my opinion. I yeah, think, that that game had all sorts of baggage though when you think about how Jaron looked on the court. Jaron looked injured. Should he have played? Should he have not have played? We let one guy beat us essentially. So, but they're also still a quality and we've never, team. We've never won at Cintas. We've never, we, well, yeah, it's been a long time since we, I think, 2001. Mm-hmm. You know, so, all right, let's throw that out the window, too. They're, they're also highly rated in Kempom as a top 30 team at the moment. And then Iowa, who, even with the loss of, of one of their players, is still in the top 20 for Kempom. They're still out there scoring at, at a high clip. We did disrupt their, their, their tempo. And, well, we showed what we could be a, as a defensive team by how, how uncomfortable we made them look offensively, especially in the second half. And look what we did against Tennessee. What you're, what, you're, what you're telling me and what you're showing me here is that we had a really good non-conference schedule. 
there weren't there was one cupcake on the schedule, Alabama A and M, and there were more games. I mean, obviously we should beat Bowling Green, obviously we should beat Colgate, but they're still not they're not Q four teams. They're not teams that are at the bottom of college basketball. They're teams that are, yes, Cincinnati is better, more talented than them, but they're teams that are at least going to test you and challenge you potentially and make your resume look better at the end of the season. So tough losses, not games we should lose, but I do like the approach we took to non-conference scheduling this year. Yeah, and look, we lost five games, and two of them were, as we said, like, eh, we probably shouldn't have lost, but we did. And uh, we're still right there in the in the top I think we're 53 or 54 in Kempom as of, as of today. What we want to be higher, obviously, because I think we're trending more towards being a bubble team, and we're gonna. I think we're gonna get into that with what we need to do the rest of the season in order to get an at-large bid that doesn't involve winning the t- conference tournament. Because uh, I don't think you want to rely on that as being your your gateway, your ticket into the tournament. But this con- this schedule gives you the ability to do that and be more of an at-large bid, have some quality losses, but get some quality wins on the on the resume too. And I'm looking forward to John Brandon's future in terms of what he's going to bring us in terms of scheduling. Agreed. So that non-conference schedule takes us, we're at seven and five heading into conference play. And as we preview what this conference schedule might bring, what we can expect, let's just group these teams, the conference teams into different buckets. And so to start, let's start with the bottom of the conference. These are the teams that in my opinion, we as a podcast can just choose to ignore. It would be unforgivable for us to lose games against these teams. And I'm putting that as East Carolina, Tulane, and South and South Florida. Those teams, while they might be heading in the right direction long term, and, and I'm really talking more about Tulane and South Florida, who's who's dealt with some tough injuries, as it stands this season, these are teams that are just easy wins. These are schedule wins. And if we drop games to them, we kind of know where, where, where we're heading at that point. We know where we're heading into when we're, when we're starting to talk, getting into some of these other groupings of teams that we're going to be that are in the conference. These are also quality teams that we're going to have home and home with. We, we actually have a pretty tough uh, conference schedule this year, which is, which is nice to see. Um, so when we're getting into that, that next group of teams, you know, you're talking Tulsa, UCF, you're talking SMU. SMU. Those are teams where, are we thinking about them? Yes. Are we talking about them? No. Well, they're the upset alert teams. They're the upset alert teams. And, right. And, and you could probably wrap South Florida as the bottom of that group, but definitely, you know, if we're losing to South Florida, like you mentioned with the injuries, I'm just, I'm not. These are the, those are, yeah. This is another group. The upset alert teams, SMU, UCF, Tulsa, that's the group of teams where we're clearly better than them. We're clearly more talented than them. And they're teams that we should expect a win when we play them. But they're good enough and frisky enough where it's not out of the realm of possibilities that they might upset you if you don't bring your A game. So put them on the radar. SMU in particular has been a really good offensive team so far this season. But all in all, these also should be teams that we take care of business on. And if we do, they help boost us in the long term so that we can really reserve our tough games and our tough losses for the rest of the teams in the American. Because so far this season, the bottom is really bad. But the mid-tier and top of the of the conference is is looking good from my perspective. I'd, I'd say it's as good as the conference has been in quite some time. Maybe the elite teams aren't as elite as they've been in the past. Um, but that next group, let's say, just if things click, maybe they win the conference. And this is where I think Cincinnati falls. This is where Temple falls. This is where Connecticut falls. 
And we're even going to throw in Houston. Yeah, I want to throw in Houston in there. I know Houston right now is is standing pretty high in in the Ken Palm rankings, but if I'm just looking at at what Houston's bringing to the to the to the table, they haven't really played anybody. And look, our offense looks amazing when we play against Alabama A and M. Like, come on. And and I just I just don't know if it's seeing it there because I think the other two teams that were going into that elite tier are just really good. Yeah, I would say the results of the teams that we're putting as the elite of the conference, the cream of the conference, which is Wichita State and Memphis, those are the two teams that have stood out based on non-conference play. And so going into conference play, that's who I expect to be the top two teams right now. But I do think this group of Houston, Cincinnati, Temple, UConn, there's enough there. There's enough coaching prowess. There's enough talent on their rosters where if things break right, you get to pull off a few upsets this group could still compete for a conference championship, and I'm including Cincinnati in that as well. Yeah, and, and one thing I will do, because I don't want to give Houston, you know, I don't want to slight them too much. I definitely think if I had to rank those teams, I'm putting them at, at, at the top of that list of of temp, or, uh, Houston, Temple, Connecticut, Cincinnati. They're going to be that, that team that I think is, is number three right now in the conference. And then Memphis, I think they've just looked fantastic, even without – James Wiseman they still had some quality wins that they've had they played really good basketball they're, they're going to be really challenging to play at home and well, yeah Penny's got that Memphis team playing really good defense and it's a young group still it's a it's a lot of young freshman talent that uh, doesn't have a lot of experience at this level but they are immensely talented he had one of the best recruiting classes in the conference for a reason uh, not even the conference in the country and and they're going to be a tough out even without James Wiseman because they also have um Precious, I think, Precious Achua. I hope I'm saying that right. But he was another big recruit, also a big man. And what's happened is when you when you take Wiseman out of the equation, in some respects, they were a little bit redundant, and you can't necessarily maximize both of them with on the court. So by removing Wiseman, he's gotten even better. And they're just as tough. They're going to be just as tough of an out for the Bearcats. And um, I think that the, the conference, when you list those six teams, it's pretty tough. And we have a lot of opportunities as, from the Cincinnati vantage point here, the Bearcats have a lot of opportunities to pick off really quality wins and and perform at a level that could still get us an at-large bit, bit in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're just running down down through this, we have a home-and-home, home, or home-and-home, home-and-away uh, with Temple. We have one with Memphis. Uh, we have one with Wichita State. We have one with Houston. You know, it's actually kind of, I think, going to work to our advantage that we only play a team like South Florida once. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Wait, we're not. We don't. We only play East Carolina once. Yeah, we need. Or, sorry, more wins. we do play. Sorry, we do play East Carolina twice. The Bearcats badly need wins, but we don't need them against teams like East Carolina. I mean, you have to win those games. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm. We we need wins against real good competition because we only took advantage of Tennessee in our in our non-conference schedule. Yeah. So like when we're only get when we only have to play Tulane once. Okay, great. We don't have to worry about you know one maybe choking up on them, but two. You know, it's just it's not going to do anything for us beating a team like like Tulane where we really need to be playing Connecticut twice. We need to be able to take at least one. You know, I think and we were talking about this before we got on here. I think that the game coming up here on Wednesday is one of the most important games of the season already. Well, it's a, yeah, it's hard to call it a must win game. But if we want to actually be thinking about the NCAA tournament, 
we have to win the game against yeah, Utah. I, I'm I actually, am, let's call it a must-win game. I think it's a must-win game for the Bearcats. If, if you don't win at home against Connecticut, your next trip to Connecticut, you're playing to wherever they're going to put it. Either they're going to put it on campus at the Pavilion in, up there in Stores, Connecticut, and that's a, tr- a small arena, but, man, is it a challenging place to play when that place is packed. Or they're going to move it down into downtown Hartford at a much bigger arena and making an even more challenging place to play. Right. So all you're doing by losing that game is just saying, hey, you know what, my mountain just got that much taller because realistically, if I'm looking at this, the schedule, I think we have six losses to give. I think in order for us to be a turn- team that is considered a, a bubble that's in on the right side of history, we have to have 19 wins before we get to conference play. Or tournament play, because then the tournament play can push us into that 20, 21 wins, and that's going to solidify us into into the tournament. Yeah, and I think that's still bubble at best. I think you might be right where we're on the on the good side of things, but I never feel great if you don't hit 20 wins. You know, I'm used to hitting 20 wins based on what Mick Cronin's done recently. And if we're only, if we, so you said 12 and 6, so if we go 12 and 6 in conference play, that'll get us to a final record of 19 and 11. 11. Yeah. Not great, Bob. But in the conversation. And then you enter tournament play. If you go on a run, obviously, if you win the tournament, we don't even have to be talking about this. But at this point, based on how we've played this season, we cannot bank on winning the conference tournament. We've got to figure out ways to go out there and get wins against Houston, get wins against Temple, get an upset against Memphis, get an upset against Wichita State. I think it's possible. Yeah. I think we've seen signs, bits and pieces of play during these, these last few games. But we really need to see John Brandon tighten the ship, right the ship, make it so that we're actually in, we're playing 40 minutes of hell on defense and we're executing more consistently on offense, not turning the ball over. And then we need some guys to figure out how to hit shots. Jaron Cumberland in particular. Jaron Cumberland, who's yep. hit shots in the past. We need Jaron Cumberland to start hitting shots as we move into conference play. And here's something else that's actually going to go into our favor. And here's where I want to give you know a shout-out to the fans in Cincinnati who – helped make this a sellout from a season ticket perspective. The arena has been incredible, an incredible environment to play, a very challenging environment for other teams to come in and play in. And I think that's going to continue to help us. I think the fan base is still behind John Brandon. I think that they're still behind this team. There's still belief. So packing these arenas and making it a very challenging place for Wichita State to come in, because we don't have, look, sweeping a team like Wichita State, sweeping Memphis, Yes. Do we want it all day, every day? Is it a reality, a likelihood? No. But if you can come and make it challenging to play at home, win your home games, it's going to make this a lot easier for us to say, hey, six wins is a reality. Or six losses is a reality that we can be staring at come come March 7th. I agree. So it, all is not lost for the Bearcats. You know, it, it feels when you're entering conference at seven and five, it's easy to think, well, the tournament is gone. The tournament streak is over. I'm not feeling that way. I actually think we've the best is yet to come for the Bearcats. I think that the the extended hiatus right now during the, the, the holiday season is going to be good for us. And that once Brandon gets him back on the court, gets the offense tightened up a little bit, more games where Micah, Micah Adams-Woods minutes are up in the 30-minute range, Chris McNeil's down in the 10-minute range. And if we can find a way to get Jaron Cumberland scoring at a – at a, a higher clip and knocking down the open shots. I just don't see why we can't make some noise in conference play again. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, you know, we keep hitting on this, this conference we're standing, we're almost getting ready to eclipse the pac 12 from a conference standpoint in terms of quality. So 
our conference is no joke. This the conference is, isn't the problem. We're not yeah. stuck in a in a no man's conference here. You know, maybe for football, it's limiting in terms of what where you can go and the heights you can reach. For basketball, it's not. You know, we should be respected uh, just the same as a lot of these other conferences. Maybe we're not at the the height of heights like the Big Ten right now, but we're we're right there with the Pac-12. There's not a big difference between the American Athletic Conference and the Pac-12. And and honestly, over the next couple of years, as we're seeing teams that are on the come up. The conference is only going to get better in in the upcoming years, I think. So that's that's something else to look forward to. Well, look is at that the coaches in our conference? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no. That's why Houston might be one of the elite teams of the conference. Is you have Kelvin Sampson, and there is you can put stock in knowing Kelvin Sampson's team is going to continually get better. And you know, while they may have not been as good in non conference as we might have expected, and we might be dissing them a little bit by putting them in that lower tier. It's not going to surprise you if Calvin Sampson has Houston competing for a conference title. Not just at all. Sa- and just the same, I'm not going to be surprised if John Brandon has us doing it either. I'm not going to say I expect it at this point, but it's possible. It's in the re- it's in the the realm of outcomes, and that's because the pedigree is there. We have done it before. A lot of the guys on the roster this season, the key contributors like Keith Williams, Jaron Cumberland, Trey Scott, they helped us win a conference title last year. The same can be done this year. We just need to see things turn in the right direction. Yeah, and especially because, you know, I don't want to start taking stock into what next season brings because we're, we're obviously not finished with this one. But next year is going to be what I would say is probably a challenging year for us as Bearcat fans because we're going to be playing a lot of inexperienced recruits coming in. We're going to probably have a lot of freshmen getting minutes because we're going to have a big gaping hole at the at the center position. So we're going to have to probably have a, a hopefully a grad transfer to help fill out some some veteran there. But you know, we're going to go through some growing pains in the next few years, but we totally do have expectations for John Brandon to be able to use the talent that he's recruited to compete for conference championships year in and year out. And so, you know, we're, we expect that we don't have that necessarily expectation this year. We may not even have it next year, but who knows what we're saying after next year's non-conference, if we're seeing the way, you know, a guy like Tari Eason's going to come in the way they're able to play with, if he's able to immediately contribute the way that say Mike Adams Woods has this year. So I, I think it's okay to say, look, we don't have the expectations that this team is going to win, but I think we can be safe saying, you know what? I believe we can win and we have, we have the talent to do it. We have a coach that is able to get us there it, at this point. It's been the same thing all season. It's about execution at this point. By the dip. By the dip. By the dip. <laughs> <laughs> so. I do want to thank everyone for their continued support of the podcast. We continue to get more and more listeners each week. As always, I'll ask that you subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, shoot us a five-star review, let the people know why you enjoy the podcast. We're always available on Twitter. We enjoy the feedback, the commentary, the banter. Uh, find us at Cincy Slangin. You can also hit us with an email, cincyslangin at gmail.com, cincyslangin at gmail.com. Let us know what's wrong with our all-decade awards. Uh, who else should we have been thinking about? Did we miss on some of them? But uh, we really appreciate all the listening all the and sharing it with your family and friends. It's been fun to do. We have reached that point of the podcast, Hummer, where it's time to dedicate this podcast episode to a former Bearcat great, who are we dedicating this to? So there's been a trend here. Uh, we're, I'm picking players from the not even in this decade to to get awards for this decade team. So I'm actually we're gonna we're gonna dedicate this podcast to a player who is a current bas- basketball player. But what we would like to see is his former self come back out here in conference play. Jaron Cumberland, 
we're going to dedicate this to the OG. We want to see the 2018, 2017, 2018 Jaron Cumberland coming out, shining his bright light on the court January 1st, Wednesday night. We're wanting to see a win against UConn, and I want to see Jaron Cumberland throw down a double-double. We have seen Jaron Cumberland give nightmares to the coaches of this conference for years now. I like it. We're dedicating the podcast to the ghost of Jaron Cumberland past, which is uh, fitting given the holiday season. And so if Jaron Cumberland can find a way to, to regain that 18-19 form, hey, we might be talking conference title again. So I like the dedication. Shout out to you, Jaron. You're a Bearcat legend. You're a Bearcat great. Let's close the season strong and win this conference. Boom, baby.